Uh, let's all uh, stand again at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, this morning we are continuing on our series on Christianity and taking a biblical view of what the Bible says about it. And uh, this morning we'll be continuing with our message on belonging, the emphasis on belonging. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And may God bless the reading of His Word today as my prayer. You may be seated. <clears throat> we have surrounded our discussion or framed our discussion on Christianity around four concepts. First of all, becoming. No one is born a Christian. If you're a Christian today, it's because you became one at some point in your life. And if you're not a Christian uh, or haven't become a Christian, then you need to. And we become a Christian as we receive the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And I hope that you have put your faith and trust in him, understanding that uh, Jesus died for your sins and you've asked him to forgive you of your sins and be your savior. Jesus called that being born again. We've considered then how that Christianity is all about uh, believing uh, because a Christian is a person who believes. Obviously, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe on him is to also uh, believe in the truth that he left for us and we accept the Bible then as being God's inspired word. It's authoritative. We don't always do everything that it says as Christians, but we always recognize that the word of God is always true and always right. A Christian is about becoming. A Christian is about believing. A Christian then is about behaving, behaving, because our lifestyle as Christians, the life that we live matters. It matters. And so Paul wrote his young protege, who was by that time pastor of the church at Ephesus, it was Timothy, uh, so that he might know how to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, becoming believing, behaving. And then the last word is this one, belonging. We noted that the Apostle Peter referred to Christians with numerous nouns of multitude. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, uh, his own special people. He called us living stones being built together as a spiritual house, at the house of God, the church of the living God. We also considered the concept of the body of Christ as it's presented in Scripture because, I tell you, this belonging thing I told you before is all over the Bible. And I really thought I might get to it in, in, in at the most two sermons, but here we are in number three, and it's at least going to be number four. I mean, it's just there's too much to cover and, uh, and just leave some of it undone. And so we're relating to the body of Christ as it relates to us as being both in Christ or in his body. And, of course, in Cabot. And uh, when we come to that local part, then we're talking about that local church body where we are built together. And uh, we all serve God together. We have different functions, different gifts. And we bring them all together as a part then of that local church body. We have, in a sense, then considered this whole concept of belonging in a theological way. 
as we've talked about how we belong. We are a part of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. And we see that spiritually. And we also see it very practically in our local church body. But still, those are theological concepts. And like every great concept, there has to be a practical application of all this. And so our belonging becomes much more of a practical thing. Uh, So that we are, yes, in Christ. Yes, we are in the church. But do we have a sense of belonging? Belonging. Uh, I thought of that old 70s sitcom. And I don't bring it up because it was a particularly good sitcom. It really wasn't all that good. I didn't watch it a whole lot. But I do remember the song that was a theme song of that old 70s sitcom, Cheers. We want to go, they said, where everybody knows your name. And every episode began with people walking in there and everybody's greeting one another. And it's sad to think that the world has to conceive of a bar (laughs) to think of that kind of place. But God gave us something a whole lot better than a bar. He gave us a local church to belong to. But do we then have that sense of belonging? So it can be theologically true because we're saved and we're in Christ. It can be theologically true because we're saved and in Christ and therefore in a local church because we've committed ourselves to it and we're members of it. But have we gone further so that we do have that sense, that feeling of belonging, belonging? And oh, brothers and sisters in Christ... (laughs) The New Testament has a whole, whole lot to say about this subject. I'm just going to be able to scratch the surface of it a little bit today. But it is introduced to us in our great text today here in Ephesians chapter 4. When we're told to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. There it is. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Passage begins with the strongest of all personal motivations uh, to walk worthy, he said, of your calling. You see, Jesus has called us to be his disciples, his followers. He has called us in that sense to be saved, to have our eternal destiny in heaven. And as a Christ follower, then, Paul encourages us to walk worthily of this calling. Uh, to conduct ourselves in, in a worthy manner. And he has something particular in mind. And that is our unity as believers in Christ. Keeping the unity of the Spirit, as he'll say it, in the bond of peace. The very nature of this calling requires us to live together in unity. Jesus said in John 13 and 35, By this this shall all men know that you are my disciples, in that you have love one to another. Primary distinguishing characteristic of God's people is that we are a people who love one another. If you've ever been to a business meeting at the church, you've heard me quote Psalm 133 and verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So it's not just a New Testament concept. It was an Old Testament concept as well. Uh, God's children would dwell together in unity. So when Paul brings this up in our text this morning in Ephesians 4, he talks about four great things that we need. In order to 
uh, go about this endeavor. In order to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there's four great things that he brings up that we need. And the first one is lowliness. Lowliness. With all lowliness, he says. Now, lowliness is a compound word. It describes a state of not being far from the ground. That's the low part. And uh, we join it then with our hearts, our feelings of self-awareness, so that we consider ourselves to be uh, a low, low. And I'm talking about low emotionally. Uh, the opposite, perhaps, of lowliness, lowliness would give us a sense of the word. Uh, the opposite of it would be feelings like pride and arrogance. Or the one we find particularly distasteful in everybody else, Entitlement. Entitlement. Now, when I'm feeling a little bit entitled, it's not at all disgusting to me. <laughs> hey, don't look at me that way. Y'all feel the same. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. We, we find it so disgusting in everybody else. Pride, arrogance, and entitlement. That is, a, take a very high view of ourselves. We become demanding and arrogant people. The opposite of that, then, is lowliness. Lowliness. And you'll notice the word all before that. We need all the lowliness we can get. Uh, this is not something we need just a little dab of, folks. We need a whole bunch of it. We need all of it that we can get. Then there's another thing that he combines with that, something else that we need all of it we can get because it's not just all lowliness, but it's also all gentleness. This is often translated meekness refers literally to strength being under control. And perhaps the greatest illustration of it is a horse that is a gentle horse. Now, it's still strong. It's still powerful. It still has the capability of hurting you. I mean, it, it's all there. All that strength and power but is there, but it's now gentled, gentled. All that strength and power is under control. Again, the opposite of that would be stubborn, or wild, out of control, self-willed. All of those things would play into it. But instead, we're told to be gentle or meek. We need all of these two that we have. Followers of Christ need lowliness and gentleness. These two things, by the way, are both available to us because of the presence of the Spirit of God in us. These things are a part of the fruit of the Spirit. What He brings forth in us is lowliness and gentleness. The third quality is long-suffering. Long-suffering. You might remember the famous chapter on love that Paul wrote. It's 1 Corinthians 13. If you haven't read it lately, I'd encourage you to go home this afternoon and just read through it. It's a great, great chapter. But as he begins to describe then love and define love, not by how it feels. The Bible doesn't really define love by how it feels. Love is defined by how it behaves. And the very first behavior that he mentions when he begins to tell us what love is, yeah, Love suffers long, he said. Love is long-suffering. And the second one, he joined with it, and is kind. Love suffers long and is kind. We can just see very quickly how that the addition of just those two things would improve any area of our life in which we could bring those two things to bear. Your marriage could be improved. 
by people being long-suffering and kind. Our role as parents can be improved by being long-suffering and kind. Our role certainly as church members, as fellow members of the body of Christ, yes, uh, we can improve ourselves simply by being long-suffering and kind. The concept of long-suffering is often translated as patient, patient. But it carries the concept of endurance in our relationship that is brought through a slowness, listen, a slowness in avenging wrongs. Endurance, patience, long-suffering. What is that? A slowness in avenging wrongs. Well, I'll tell you what now, I'm, I don't believe in getting even. I get ahead. Well, you can live by that creed, but I'll tell you what, you cannot live by that creed and live by this one. <laughs> because that's the opposite of being long-suffering. That person who's quick to retaliate whether verbally or physically, whatever is required, that person who's so quick, I've, I've, oh, I'm, long-suffering is just the opposite of that. Long-suffering is needed, basically, if any relationship is going to endure. Because sooner or later, <laughs> in spite of our very best intentions, we're all going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to say things that we shouldn't say. I mean, in any relationship, whether it's a business relationship, a professional relationship, whether it's at school, at work, whatever it is, long-suffering. The last quality he mentions is forbearance. We might get these confused if we didn't look very carefully, but forbearance carries the idea of a lifting or holding one another up. We often use the expression, well, there's strength in numbers, and there is. The whole reason why the Bible uses all of these nouns of multitude in reference to the people, there's another one, of God, is because we are not born again in isolation. The whole concept involves us in, in uh, carrying on and having a life with other people. And here's this other one, forbearing Holding one another up. Perhaps John Lennon and Paul McCartney said it best that I would always think of Joe Coker. I get by with a little help from my friends. I was just a child when he sang that at Woodstock. And I didn't even know what Woodstock was until about 10 years later. Or maybe you prefer the Bill Withers version. We all need somebody to lean on. And yeah, I know I need to upgrade, update some of my songs. But then I'd have to listen to these modern songs. Uh, I had my niece uh, with us this week, uh, this weekend and went down to see my dad. I, I played Taylor Swift almost all the way back from Texarkana. <laughs> I got to Benton. And I turned it off. I'm done. I can't handle it anymore. Taylor Swift is, I know y'all are thinking, I love Taylor Swift. Don't get mad at me. I just am not a fan. And I'm sure she has some great songs that talk about how we need each other. I'm sure she does. And I'm sure there are many others. But I'll just stick with the 
tried and true. I get by with a little help from my friends, and we all need somebody to lean on. All of that is built into the biblical word forbearance. Forbearance. We hold each other up. These four then great qualities, lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and forbearance. These are the things that we need. And what is the task then? If these are the tools that we need in order to accomplish the task, what is the task? It is to endeavor, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the task. And so we need these four qualities in order to accomplish, as they are given to us, by the way, by the Holy Spirit of God, and then empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, then we can enter this task. The word endeavor refers to something we work very hard to accomplish. It is at its best a great and noble quest, an endeavor at its very least, it refers to an urgent and important task. A task that we make haste in. Uh, that we consider urgent. To keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now to place this in its biblical perspective, we need to understand a little bit about this peace that Paul is writing about because it's really all over the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2.14, and I have several lengthy readings that I'm going to read for you today. I'm not going to preach about them in all detail. Uh, Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. And that he in that passage refers to Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace. To you who are far off and to those who are near. If you read a little further back in Ephesians 2, you'd find out that the Apostle Paul had waded into one of the most controversial and spite-filled situations in his world, the Jew and the Gentile. Uh, the Jews, of course, were the descendants of Abraham, the Gentiles, everybody else. The rise and prevalence of anti-Semitism in today's world reminds us that things haven't changed a lot. There's still a lot of hostility toward the Jewish people. We see all kinds of races and ethnicities, but God acknowledges only these two, really the Jew and the Gentile. Generations and centuries had served to fuel this controversy, and all of it rushes in whenever the Gentiles and the Jews had to start dealing with being equal participants in the body of Christ. Interestingly, one of the places where this most frequently boiled over in the early churches was in their potluck fellowships, of all things. You'd think a church ought to be able to gather together and eat without fussing, but boy, that was not the case. And, you, and we know why. We know why. I mean, the Jews had very, very strict dietary guidelines. Very strict. And those things didn't die easily. 
And even though Paul brings it up in this passage and says that he has blotted out, Jesus Christ has blotted out that handwriting of ordinances that was between us and contrary to us and took it out of the way, even though that was doctrinally true, they still struggled. They still struggled. And it didn't take long. You remember how God worked in Simon Peter's life to bring to him that vision of a great sheet and and all kinds of animals that were unclean on there. And God said to Simon Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And he said, that strange concept, not so, Lord. I I mean, I just can't pass that one by. Not so and Lord. You know, those two things that don't go together. Uh, No, Lord. Uh, Oops. (laughs) No, he just shouldn't ever say that. If Jesus is Lord, then we don't tell him no. But Simon Peter did, at least to his credit. He did it right to his face. Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And then God says, whatever I've sanctified, you don't call common. We remember that. And the whole purpose was to send him to a Gentile's home, a Roman citizen, a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. And he was going to go into his house, which was forbidden, He was going to preach to them. Cornelius Cornelius would be saved. The Holy Spirit would fall on him. He would begin to speak in tongues just like they had when the day of Pentecost had occurred. So that everybody would be able to see that Gentiles had been brought then into the body of Christ as full participants. Not as bystanders, but as full participants. So everybody was really excited and happy about all this, right? Mm -mm. In fact, I I think really that Cornelius and his household were probably still dripping wet from their baptism by the time word got back to Jerusalem. And there was a bunch of people waiting on Simon Peter when he got back. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. They were hot. Controversy was very strong. Notice his great breach of ethics, this terrible crime that he had committed that had everybody so upset in Jerusalem. He had gone into a Gentile's home and ate food with them. With all the gatherings and meals and all the churches all over the Roman Empire bringing together Jews and Gentiles, there was bound to be trouble and there was That's why we have the whole book of Hebrews because a lot of the Jews just gave up. They couldn't handle it. They went back to the synagogues and back to the temple where everything was segregated and simple. Jews had their place. Gentiles had their place. Women had their place. They didn't mix and mingle. Segregated. Simple. They liked it that way. That's why we got the book of Hebrews. And it's also why we had the book of Ephesians. Because Paul here declares... That Jesus Christ did more on the cross of Calvary than just purchase our salvation. He also established peace. Peace. And so he begins with that great declaration. He himself is our peace. Many translations have this simple. He is our peace. But there's an emphasis here on the person of Christ. 
brought out in the translation, he himself. You see, it isn't just what he did, it is who he is. He himself is our peace. The very fact that he is the crucified, risen, exalted Lord of glory, he stands in as our peace. He is our peace. Remember that one of his Old Testament titles was the Prince of Peace. Remember when he was born, the angels filled up the Palestinian countryside with their shouts of praise, saying, peace is on earth. Peace on earth. Jesus is our peace. Not only is he our peace, but also we see he made peace. So that the Jew and the Gentile could be reconciled to God and to each other in one body and through the cross. And not only that, but he preaches peace. He came and he preached peace. And that's past. But the words of Jesus live on through his inspired word. And it speaks to us just as powerfully. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He preached peace. Part of the message of Jesus Christ is the peace. Jesus is our peace. He made peace. He preaches peace. That's the whole premise of the gospel. Since that's true, I always like to point out that the devil is the ultimate disturber of the peace. Since God's gospel, since the cross of Jesus Christ means that we can be at peace and experience peace. Listen to me, people. The gospel of Jesus Christ means that we can experience peace with God and we can then live in peace with one another. That's what the gospel does. He made us both one. He made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. He brings us together then in a local body where we can experience and live out that peace and unity. Since that is true, the devil works very hard to stir up strife and division so that we would be known as anything but a people of peace. And that is so tragically true in the world today. It's not anything new. Remember, they said of Paul and his crowd, these that have turned the world upside down have come here too. They've turned the whole world upside down. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. You see, in a world racked by turmoil and filled with conflict and strife on every side, those who seek peace, those who live at peace, those who make peace, stand out. The devil and all of the demons of hell are at work, not so much to create wickedness. Listen to me. It is not their task to create wickedness. You know why? Because we create all the wickedness we can handle all by ourselves. I don't care what Flip Wilson said. The devil doesn't make us do it all the time. Most of the time, it's our own rotten choices. We are perfectly capable of stirring up all the wickedness. Why? We are fallen creatures. And we have a, 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 a pre, uh, we're predisposed towards sin. The devil's not at work then to stir up and create wickedness. The devil's at work to create turmoil and strife. Why? Because it is the antithesis of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. 
And there's no place on the planet where the devil loves to stir up turmoil and strife any more than he does among God's people and in his churches. He'll, now, don't <laughs> misunderstand. He'll, he'll stir up strife anywhere. He loves it. He loves it. So I want us to continue reading today in our text. I just want to read this to you. Yes, I could assign you all to read it at home, but I'm going to read it to you. Follow along with me on the screen. So our text in Ephesians 4, we have then Ephesians 2 that that sets what this peace is that he's calling on us to endeavor to keep. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what is this peace? He himself is our peace. He made peace to the cross. He preaches peace to us. Endeavor then to keep that peace. And so as we continue in our text, Ephesians 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. There was some other discussion I want us to jump forward then in verse 11. And he himself gave some. So he's talking about Christ's gifts to us. He gave some to the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. And then verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. What an incredible expression that is. Tossed to and fro by every little wind. By the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, the primary task of the pastor-teacher that is mentioned in Ephesians 4 and 12 is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that the body of Christ, this local church, can grow and be built up. This spiritual maturity so that we would grow up in all things unto Christ Uh, It's effective regardless of age. It's easy for us to maybe look at teenagers or young people and say, yeah, they need to grow up. Well, you know, you can be 18 or you can be 28 or 48 or or 88 and still need to grow. I hope I keep growing. Listen, the stature of the fullness of Christ is not something we are ever going to attain to in this life. I'm never going to say, okay, I'm as good as Jesus was. There's always room for improvement. Amen. So there's always a place for us to grow and we always need to grow. And this is that spiritual maturity that involves the putting away a childish behavior so that the saints walk in maturity and seek peace and work together in harmony. And when this happens, the body grows. The building up of the body. Let me say this in a simple way for us today because I'm a simple kind of guy and this has always made sense to me and it always has worked. If you create a place, listen, if you create a church, Where people love Jesus and love each other and where they work together and live in peace. You can't keep a church like that from growing. Where people love Jesus 
and love each other and work together and live in peace. That church will grow. Sometimes they grow exponentially like they did on the, Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost. <laughs> and I've often wondered what that first business meeting would have been when the church went from 150 to over 3,000 in a day. I don't know all these people. <laughs> Man, there's a lot more of them than there is of us. I mean, I just always... Sometimes churches grow exponentially, but most of the time they, they, just, kinda, they just keep growing, kind of like we all do. The body grows. One more passage and we're done. Colossians 3.15 says, Then let the peace of God rule in your heart, to which also you called in one body, and be thankful. So we're talking about our unity and our fellowship as believers and our unity in our church. When we talk about the unity, the peace of God rather ruling in our hearts, there are two sides of this, in our actions and our reactions. Before we act and before we react, we need to stop a moment and ask ourselves, is what I'm thinking about doing or is how I'm going to react, is that disturbing my peace? You see, Jesus came to give you peace. Obviously, sin creates turmoil, but a lot besides sin creates turmoil. And so we need to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. If we don't have peace about something, we need to hold off on it. If we do something, even well-intentioned, and we create something that doesn't cause peace, then we need to learn from that and move back to the peace and create peace and establish peace. Remember on the night that Jesus died, which goes about as far back with the church as you can go. <laughs> we do say, and I do believe, I believe the Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus started a local church while he was here. When he gathered those disciples together, they were baptized. Now, there could be only one because... A church has to have the presence of Jesus Christ in order to be a church. If Jesus isn't here, we can have a religious gathering, but we can't have a church. Do you understand? Jesus has to be here. And as long as he was in a physical body, he could only be one place. So he started one church. It was wherever he was. And the most that we can ever see that was around that was a part of that church who actually became a part of that church while he was here was about 120. Pretty small bunch. But most of the time it was 12 and maybe a few others those 12 apostles and a few of the ladies that kind of followed around and helped them and cooked for them. And Jesus went around to teach and taught. He started a church while he was here. We know that because in Matthew 18, he said to the disciples, if there's a disagreement among you, so your brother offends you, you go and tell it between you and him alone. And if you can't deal with that, then you get two or three others. And then if necessary, then you tell it to the church. Well, there had to be a church to tell it to. You understand what I'm saying? And so though it was in a, a very, I don't know what to say exactly, so for lack of a better word, I'll just say it was in a very primitive form. Uh, some people call it a very nuclear form, kind of like that nuclear family. Yeah, I understand all that. But it was still there. And on the night that Jesus died... church was squabbling arguing among themselves 
They had a fellowship. And nobody would serve anybody else. And Jesus, who was on his way to the cross, had to stop and put the servant's towel on and grab the basin and go around and wash everybody's feet because nobody else would do it. They were arguing over who was going to be in charge and who was going to be the greatest and who was going to lie and going to serve feet. That bunch, that one. On the night Jesus died, church was fussing I just bring that up to you because this is a common thing it's been going on among churches all over the New Testament but the Bible never surrendered to it not for a minute instead it tells us you endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace it's a part of our fellowship it's a part of that essential role that belonging plays in the Christian life. And we'll talk more about how that concept goes into fellowship. I wish I had time today. I don't. But I can tell you that fellowship is not always right. The Bible tells us to uh, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, for example. And that's just another chapter over in Ephesians 5. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So there's a place where we as believers don't go to for fellowship. And that's to the people who don't know Jesus Christ and who aren't living for him. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So we need to be careful, God's people, where we get our fellowship. We're going to talk more about that next week. Today, we just try to drive this peg down for ourselves and remember this whole concept of belonging, which is a big deal in the Christian life, involves keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's stand together, please.